This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Brian Roberg, www.brianroberg.org. The Innocence of Father Brown by G. K. Chesterton The Hammer of God The little village of Bowen Beacon was perched on a hill so steep that the tall spire of its church seemed only like the peak of a small mountain. At the foot of the church stood a smithy, generally red with fires, and always littered with hammers and scraps of iron. Opposite to this, over a rude cross of cobbled paths, was the Blue Boar, the only inn of the place. It was upon this crossway, in the lifting of a leaden and silver daybreak, that two brothers met in the street and spoke, though one was beginning the day and the other finishing it. The Reverend and Honorable Wilfred Bowen was very devout, and was making his way to some austere exercises of prayer or contemplation at dawn. Colonel the Honorable Norman Bowen, his elder brother, was by no means devout, and was sitting in evening dress on the bench outside the Blue Boar, drinking what the philosophic observer was free to regard either as his last glass on Tuesday or his first on Wednesday. The colonel was not particular. The Bowens were one of the very few aristocratic families really dating from the Middle Ages, and their pennon had actually seen Palestine. But it is a great mistake to suppose that such houses stand high in chivalric tradition. Few, except the poor, preserve traditions. Aristocrats live not in traditions, but in fashions. The Bowens had been Mohawks under Queen Anne, and Mashers under Queen Victoria. But like more than one of the really ancient houses, they had rotted in the last two centuries into mere drunkards and dandy degenerates, till there had even come a whisper of insanity. Certainly there was something hardly human about the colonel's wolfish pursuit of pleasure, and his chronic resolution not to go home till morning had a touch of the hideous clarity of insomnia. He was a tall, fine animal, elderly, but with hair still startlingly yellow. He would have looked merely blond and leonine, but his blue eyes were sunk so deep in his face that they looked black they were a little too close together. He had very long yellow mustaches, on each side of them a fold or furrow from nostril to jaw, so that a sneer seemed cut into his face. Over his evening clothes he wore a curious pale yellow coat that looked more like a very light dressing gown than an overcoat, and on the back of his head was stuck an extraordinary broad-brimmed hat of a bright green color, 
evidently some oriental curiosity caught up at random. He was proud of appearing in such incongruous attires, proud of the fact that he always made them look congruous. His brother the curate had also the yellow hair and the elegance, but he was buttoned up to the chin in black, and his face was clean-shaven, cultivated, and a little nervous. He seemed to live for nothing but his religion. But there were some who said, notably the blacksmith, who was a Presbyterian, that it was a love of Gothic architecture rather than of God, and that his haunting of the church like a ghost was only another and purer turn of the almost morbid thirst for beauty which sent his brother raging after women and wine. This charge was doubtful, while the man's practical piety was indubitable. Indeed, the charge was mostly an ignorant misunderstanding of the love of solitude and secret prayer, and was founded on his being often found kneeling, not before the altar, but in peculiar places, in the crypts or gallery, or even in the belfry. He was, at the moment, about to enter the church through the yard of the smithy, but stopped and frowned a little as he saw his brother's cavernous eyes staring in the same direction. On the hypothesis that the colonel was interested in the church, he did not waste any speculations. There only remained the blacksmith's shop, and though the blacksmith was a Puritan and none of his people, Wilfred Bowen had heard some scandals about a beautiful and rather celebrated wife. He flung a suspicious look across the shed, and the colonel stood up laughing to speak to him. "'Good morning, Wilfred,' he said. "'Like a good landlord, I am watching sleeplessly over my people. "'I am going to call on the blacksmith.' "'Wilfred looked at the ground and said, "'The blacksmith is out. "'He is over at Greenford.' "'I know,' answered the other with silent laughter. "'That is why I am calling on him.' "'Norman,' said the cleric, with his eye on a pebble in the road. Are you ever afraid of thunderbolts? What do you mean? asked the colonel. Is your hobby meteorology? I mean, said Wilfred, without looking up, do you ever think that God might strike you in the street? I beg your pardon, said the colonel. I see your hobby is folklore. I know your hobby is blasphemy, retorted the religious man, stung in the one live place of his nature. But if you do not fear God, you have good reason to fear man. The elder raised his eyebrows politely. Fear man, he said. Barnes the blacksmith is the biggest and strongest man for forty miles round, said the clergyman sternly. I know you are no coward or weakling, but he could throw you over the wall. This struck home, being true, and the lowering line by mouth and nostril darkened and deepened. 
For a moment he stood with the heavy sneer on his face. But in an instant, Colonel Bowen had recovered his own cruel good humor and laughed, showing two dog-like front teeth under his yellow mustache. "'In that case, my dear Wilfred,' he said quite carelessly, "'it was wise for the last of the Bowens to come out partially in armor.' and he took off the queer round hat covered with green, showing that it was lined within with steel. Wilfred recognized it indeed as a light Japanese or Chinese helmet torn down from a trophy that hung in the old family hall. It was the first hat to hand, explained his brother airily, always the nearest hat and the nearest woman. The blacksmith is away at Greenford, said Wilfred quietly. The time of his return is unsettled. And with that he turned and went into the church with bowed head, crossing himself like one who wishes to be quit of an unclean spirit. He was anxious to forget such grossness in the cool twilight of his tall Gothic cloisters. But on that morning, it was fated that his still round of religious exercises should be everywhere arrested by small shocks. As he entered the church, hitherto always empty at that hour, a kneeling figure rose hastily to its feet and came towards the full daylight of the doorway. When the curate saw it, he stood still with surprise, for the early worshipper was none other than the village idiot a nephew of the blacksmith, one who neither would nor could care for the church or for anything else. He was always called Mad Joe, and seemed to have no other name. He was a dark, strong, slouching lad, with a heavy white face, dark straight hair, and a mouth always open. As he passed the priest, his moon-calf countenance gave no hint of what he had been doing or thinking of. He had never been known to pray before. What sort of prayers was he saying now? Extraordinary prayers, surely. Wilfred Bowen stood rooted to the spot long enough to see the idiot go out into the sunshine, and even to see his dissolute brother hail him with a sort of avuncular jocularity. The last thing he saw was the colonel throwing pennies at the open mouth of Joe, with the serious appearance of trying to hit it. This ugly sunlit picture of the stupidity and cruelty of the earth sent the ascetic finally to his prayers for purification and new thoughts. He went up to a pew in the gallery, which brought him under a colored window which he loved and always quieted his spirit, a blue window with an angel carrying lilies. There he began to think less about the half-wit, with his livid face and mouth like a fish. He began to think less of his evil brother, pacing like a lean lion in his horrible hunger. He sank deeper and deeper into those cold and sweet colors of silver blossoms and sapphire sky. In this place, half an hour afterwards, 
he was found by Gibbs, the village cobbler, who had been sent for him in some haste. He got to his feet with promptitude, for he knew that no small matter would have brought Gibbs into such a place at all. The cobbler was, as in many villages, an atheist, and his appearance in church was a shade more extraordinary than Mad Joe's. It was a morning of theological enigmas. "'What is it?' asked Wilfred Bowen, rather stiffly, but putting out a trembling hand for his hat. The atheist spoke in a tone that, coming from him, was quite startlingly respectful, and even, as it were, huskily sympathetic. "'You must excuse me, sir,' he said in a hoarse whisper. "'But we didn't think it right not to let you know at once. "'I'm afraid a rather dreadful thing has happened, sir. "'I'm afraid your brother—' "'Wilfred clenched his frail hands. "'What devilry has he done now?' he cried in voluntary passion. "'Why, sir,' said the cobbler, coughing, I'm afraid he's done nothing, and won't do anything. I'm afraid he's done for. You had really better come down, sir. The curate followed the cobbler down a short, winding stair, which brought them out at an entrance rather higher than the street. Bowen saw the tragedy in one glance, flat underneath him like a plan. In the yard of the smithy, were standing five or six men, mostly in black, one in an inspector's uniform. They included the doctor, the Presbyterian minister, and the priest from the Roman Catholic chapel, to which the blacksmith's wife belonged. The latter was speaking to her, indeed, very rapidly, in an undertone, as she, a magnificent woman with red-gold hair, was sobbing blindly on a bench. Between these two groups, and just clear of the main heap of hammers, lay a man in evening dress, spread-eagled and flat on his face. From the height above, Wilfred could have sworn to every item of his costume and appearance, down to the bowen rings upon his fingers. But the skull was only a hideous splash, like a star of blackness and blood. Wilfred Bowen gave but one glance and ran down the steps into the yard. The doctor, who was the family physician, saluted him, but he scarcely took any notice. He could only stammer out, My brother is dead. What does it mean? What is this horrible mystery? There was an unhappy silence, and then the cobbler, the most outspoken man present, answered. Plenty of horror, sir, he said, but not much mystery. What do you mean? asked Wilfred, with a white face. It's plain enough, answered Gibbs. There is only one man for forty miles round that could have struck such a blow as that and he's the man that had most reason to. We must not prejudge anything, put in the doctor, 
a tall, black-bearded man, rather nervously. "'But it is competent for me to corroborate what Mr. Gibbs says about the nature of the blow, sir. It is an incredible blow. Mr. Gibbs says that only one man in this district could have done it. I should have said myself that nobody could have done it.' A shudder of superstition went through the slight figure of the curate. I can hardly understand, he said. Mr. Bowen, said the doctor in a low voice. Metaphors literally fail me. It is inadequate to say that the skull was smashed to bits like an eggshell. Fragments of bone were driven into the body and the ground like bullets into a mud wall. It was the hand of a giant. He was silent a moment, looking grimly through his glasses. Then he added, The thing has one advantage, that it clears most people of suspicion at one stroke. If you or I or any normally made man in the country were accused of this crime, we should be acquitted as an infant would be acquitted of stealing the Nelson column. That's what I say, repeated the cobbler obstinately. There's only one man that could have done it, and he's the man that would have done it. Where's Simeon Barnes, the blacksmith? He's over at Greenford, faltered the curate. More likely over in France, muttered the cobbler. No, he is in neither of those places, said a small, and colorless voice, which came from the little Roman priest who had joined the group. As a matter of fact, he is coming up the road at this moment. The little priest was not an interesting man to look at, having stubbly brown hair and a round and stolid face. But if he had been as splendid as Apollo, no one would have looked at him at that moment. Everyone turned round and peered at the pathway which wound across the plain below, along which was indeed walking, at his own huge stride and with a hammer on his shoulder, Simeon the smith. He was a bony and gigantic man, with deep, dark, sinister eyes and a dark chin-beard. He was walking and talking quietly with two other men, and though he was never specially cheerful, he seemed quite at his ease. "'My God!' cried the atheistic cobbler. "'And there's the hammer he did it with!' "'No,' said the inspector, a sensible-looking man with a sandy mustache, speaking for the first time. "'There's the hammer he did it with over there by the church wall. We have left it and the body,' exactly as they are. All glanced round, and the short priest went across and looked down in silence at the tool where it lay. It was one of the smallest and the lightest of the hammers, and would not have caught the eye among the rest, but on the iron edge of it were blood and yellow hair. After a silence, the short priest spoke without looking up, and there was a new note in his dull voice.
Mr. Gibbs was hardly right, he said, in saying that there is no mystery. There is at least the mystery of why so big a man should attempt so big a blow with so little a hammer. Oh, never mind that, cried Gibbs in a fever. What are we to do with Simeon Barnes? Leave him alone, said the priest quietly. He is coming here of himself. I know those two men with him. They are very good fellows from Greenford, and they have come over about the Presbyterian chapel. Even as he spoke, the tall smith swung round the corner of the church and strode into his own yard. Then he stood there quite still, and the hammer fell from his hand. The inspector, who had preserved impenetrable propriety, immediately went up to him. "'I won't ask you, Mr. Barnes,' he said, "'whether you know anything about what has happened here. "'You are not bound to say. "'I hope you don't know, and that you will be able to prove it. "'But I must go through the form of arresting you in the king's name "'for the murder of Colonel Norman Bowen.' "'You are not bound to say anything,' said the cobbler, in officious excitement. They've got to prove everything. They haven't proved yet that it is Colonel Bowen, with the head all smashed up like that. That won't wash, said the doctor, aside to the priest. That's out of the detective stories. I was the colonel's medical man, and I knew his body better than he did. He had very fine hands, but quite peculiar ones. The second and third fingers were the same length, Oh, that's the colonel right enough. As he glanced at the brained corpse upon the ground, the iron eyes of the motionless blacksmith followed them and rested there also. Is Colonel Bowen dead? said the smith quite calmly. Then he's damned. Don't say anything. Oh, don't say anything, cried the atheist cobbler dancing about in an ecstasy of admiration of the English legal system. For no man is such a legalist as the good secularist. The blacksmith turned on him over his shoulder the august face of a fanatic. It's well for you infidels to dodge like foxes because the world's law favors you, he said. But God guards his own in his pocket as you shall see this day. Then he pointed to the colonel and said, When did this dog die in his sins? Moderate your language, said the doctor. Moderate the Bible's language, and I'll moderate mine. When did he die? I saw him alive at six o'clock this morning, stammered Wilfred Bowen. God is good, said the smith. Mr. Inspector, I have not the slightest objection to being arrested. It is you who may object to arresting me. I don't mind leaving the court without a stain on my character. You do mind, perhaps, leaving the court with a bad setback in your career. 
The solid inspector for the first time looked at the blacksmith with a lively eye, as did everybody else, except the short strange priest, who was still looking down at the little hammer that had dealt the dreadful blow. "'There are two men standing outside this shop,' went on the blacksmith, with ponderous lucidity. "'Good tradesmen in Greenford, whom you all know, who will swear that they saw me from before midnight till daybreak and long after in the committee room of our revival mission, which sits all night. We save souls so fast. In Greenford itself, twenty people could swear to me for all that time. If I were a heathen, Mr. Inspector, I would let you walk on to your downfall. But as a Christian man, I feel bound to give you your chance and ask you whether you will hear my alibi now or in court. The inspector seemed for the first time disturbed and said, Of course I should be glad to clear you altogether now. The smith walked out of his yard with the same long and easy stride and returned to his two friends from Greenford who were indeed friends of nearly everyone present. Each of them said a few words which no one ever thought of disbelieving. When they had spoken, the innocence of Simeon stood up as solid as the great church above them. One of those silences struck the group which are more strange and insufferable than any speech. Madly, in order to make conversation, the curate said to the Catholic priest, You seem very much interested in that hammer, Father Brown. Yes, I am, said Father Brown. Why is it such a small hammer? The doctor swung round on him. By George, that's true, he cried. Who would use a little hammer with ten larger hammers lying about? Then he lowered his voice in the curate's ear and said, Only the kind of person that can't lift a large hammer. It is not a question of force or courage between the sexes. It's a question of lifting power in the shoulders. A bold woman could commit ten murders with a light hammer and never turn a hair. She could not kill a beetle with a heavy one. Wilfred Bowen was staring at him, with a sort of hypnotized horror, while Father Brown listened with his head a little on one side, really interested and attentive. The doctor went on, with more hissing emphasis. Why do these idiots always assume that the only person who hates the wife's lover is the wife's husband? Nine times out of ten, the person who most hates the wife's lover is the wife. Who knows what insolence or treachery he had shown her? Look there. He made a momentary gesture towards the red-haired woman on the bench. She had lifted her head at last, and the tears were drying on her splendid face. But the eyes were fixed on the corpse with an electric glare that had in it something of idiocy. The Reverend Wilfred Bowen made a limp gesture as if waving away all desire to know. But Father Brown, 
dusting off his sleeve some ashes blown from the furnace, spoke in his indifferent way. "'You are like so many doctors,' he said. "'Your mental science is really suggestive. "'It is your physical science that is utterly impossible. "'I agree that the woman wants to kill the co-respondent "'much more than the petitioner does. "'And I agree that a woman will always pick up a small hammer "'instead of a big one. "'But the difficulty is one of physical impossibility.' No woman ever born could have smashed a man's skull out flat like that. Then he added reflectively, after a pause, These people haven't grasped the whole of it. The man was actually wearing an iron helmet, and the blow scattered it like broken glass. Look at that woman. Look at her arms. Silence held them all up again and then the doctor said rather sulkily, "'Well, I may be wrong. There are objections to everything. But I stick to the main point. No man but an idiot would pick up that little hammer if he could use a big hammer.' With that, the lean and quivering hands of Wilfred Bowen went up to his head and seemed to clutch his scanty yellow hair. After an instant they dropped, and he cried, "'That was the word I wanted. You have said the word.' Then he continued, mastering his discomposure. "'The words you said were, "'No man but an idiot would pick up the small hammer.' "'Yes,' said the doctor. "'Well?' "'Well,' said the curate, "'no man but an idiot did.' the rest stared at him with eyes arrested and riveted, and he went on in a febrile and feminine agitation. "'I am a priest,' he cried unsteadily, "'and a priest should be no shedder of blood. I, I mean that he should bring no one to the gallows. And I thank God that I see the criminal clearly now, because he is a criminal who cannot be brought to the gallows.' "'You will not denounce him?' inquired the doctor. "'He would not be hanged if I did denounce him,' answered Wilfred, with a wild but curiously happy smile. "'When I went into the church this morning, I found a madman praying there, that poor Joe, who has been wrong all his life. God knows what he prayed, but with such strange folk, it is not incredible to suppose that their prayers are all upside down. Very likely a lunatic would pray before killing a man. When I last saw poor Joe, he was with my brother. My brother was mocking him. "'By Jove!' cried the doctor. "'This is talking at last. But how do you explain—' The Reverend Wilfred was almost trembling with the excitement of his own glimpse of the truth. "'Don't you see? Don't you see?' he cried feverishly. "'That is the only theory that covers both the queer things, that answers both the riddles. The two riddles are the little hammer and the big blow. The smith might have struck the big blow, 
but would not have chosen the little hammer. His wife would have chosen the little hammer, but she could not have struck the big blow. But the madman might have done both. As for the little hammer, why, he was mad and might have picked up anything. And for the big blow, have you never heard, doctor, that a maniac in his paroxysm may have the strength of ten men? The doctor drew a deep breath and then said, By golly, I believe you've got it. Father Brown had fixed his eyes on the speaker so long and steadily as to prove that his large, gray, ox-like eyes were not quite so insignificant as the rest of his face. When silence had fallen, he said with marked respect, Mr. Bowen, yours is the only theory yet propounded which holds water every way and is essentially unassailable. I think, therefore, that you deserve to be told on my positive knowledge, that it is not the true one. And with that, the old little man walked away and stared again at the hammer. That fellow seems to know more than he ought to, whispered the doctor peevishly to Wilfred. Those popish priests are deucedly sly. No, no, said Bowen, with a sort of wild fatigue. It was the lunatic. It was the lunatic. The group of the two clerics and the doctor had fallen away from the more official group containing the inspector and the man he had arrested. Now, however, that their own party had broken up, they heard voices from the others. The priest looked up quietly and then looked down again as he heard the blacksmith say in a loud voice, I hope I've convinced you, Mr. Inspector. I'm a strong man, as you say, but I couldn't have flung my hammer bang here from Greenford. My hammer hasn't got wings that it should come flying half a mile over hedges and fields. The inspector laughed amicably and said, No, I think you can be considered out of it, though it's one of the rummiest coincidences I ever saw. I can only ask you to give us all the assistance you can in finding a man as big and strong as yourself. By George, you might be useful, if only to hold him. I suppose you yourself have no guess at the man? I may have a guess, said the pale smith, but it is not at a man. Then, seeing the scared eyes turn towards his wife on the bench, he put his huge hand on her shoulder and said, Nor a woman either. What do you mean? asked the inspector jocularly. You don't think cows use hammers, do you? I think no thing of flesh held that hammer, said the blacksmith in a stifled voice. Mortally speaking, I think the man died alone. Wilfred made a sudden forward movement and peered at him with burning eyes. "'Do you mean to say, Barnes,' came the sharp voice of the cobbler, "'that the hammer jumped up of itself and knocked the man down?' 
Oh, you gentlemen may stare and snigger, cried Simeon. You clergymen who tell us on Sunday in what a stillness the Lord smote Sennacherib. I believe the one who walks invisible in every house defended the honor of mine and laid the defiler dead before the door of it. I believe the force in that blow was just the force there is in earthquakes, and no force less. Wilfred said, with a voice utterly indescribable, I told Norman myself to beware of the thunderbolt. That agent is outside my jurisdiction, said the inspector, with a slight smile. You are not outside his, answered the smith, see you to it and turning his broad back he went into the house the shaken wilfred was led away by father brown who had an easy and friendly way with him let us get out of this horrid place mr bowen he said may i look inside your church i hear it's one of the oldest in england we take some interest you know he added with a comical grimace, in old English churches. Wilfred Bowen did not smile, for humor was never his strong point. But he nodded rather eagerly, being only too ready to explain the Gothic splendors to someone more likely to be sympathetic than the Presbyterian blacksmith or the atheist cobbler. By all means, he said, let us go in at this side and he led the way into the high side entrance at the top of the flight of steps. Father Brown was mounting the first step to follow him when he felt a hand on his shoulder, and turned to behold the dark, thin figure of the doctor, his face darker yet with suspicion. Sir, said the physician harshly, you appear to know some secrets in this black business. May I ask you, if you are going to keep them to yourself. Why, doctor, answered the priest, smiling quite pleasantly. There is one good reason why a man of my trade should keep things to himself when he is not sure of them, and that is that it is so constantly his duty to keep them to himself when he is sure of them. But if you think I have been discourteously reticent with you or anyone, I will go to the extreme limit of my custom. I will give you two very large hints. Well, sir, said the doctor gloomily. First, said Father Brown quietly, the thing is quite in your own province. It is a matter of physical science. The blacksmith is mistaken, not perhaps in saying that the blow was divine, but certainly in saying that it came by a miracle. It was no miracle, doctor, except in so far as man is himself a miracle, with his strange and wicked and yet half-heroic heart. The force that smashed that skull was a force well known to scientists, one of the most frequently debated of the laws of nature. The doctor, who was looking at him with frowning intentness, only said. And the other hint? The other hint is this, said the priest. 
Do you remember the blacksmith, though he believes in miracles, talking scornfully of the impossible fairy tale that his hammer had wings and flew half a mile across country? Yes, said the doctor. I remember that. Well, added Father Brown, with a broad smile, that fairy tale was the nearest thing to the real truth that has been said today. And with that, he turned his back and stumped up the stairs after the curate. The Reverend Wilfred, who had been waiting for him, pale and impatient, as if this little delay were the last straw for his nerves, led him immediately to his favorite corner of the church, that part of the gallery closest to the carved roof and lit by the wonderful window with the angel. The little Latin priest explored and admired everything exhaustively, talking cheerfully but in a low voice all the time. When in the course of his investigation he found the side exit and the winding stair down which Wilfred had rushed to find his brother dead, Father Brown ran not down but up with the agility of a monkey, and his clear voice came from an outer platform above. "'Come up here, Mr. Bowen,' he called. "'The air will do you good.' Bowen followed him, and came out on a kind of stone gallery or balcony outside the building, from which one could see the illimitable plain in which their small hill stood, wooded away to the purple horizon, and dotted with villages and farms. Clear and square, but quite small beneath them, was the blacksmith's yard, where the inspector still stood taking notes, and the corpse still lay like a smashed fly. Might be a map of the world, mightn't it? said Father Brown. Yes, said Bowen, very gravely, and nodded his head. Immediately beneath and about them, the lines of the Gothic building plunged outwards into the void with a sickening swiftness akin to suicide. There is that element of titan energy in the architecture of the Middle Ages that, from whatever aspect it is seen, it always seems to be rushing away, like the strong back of some maddened horse. This church was hewn out of ancient and silent stone, bearded with old fungoids and stained with the nests of birds. And yet, when they saw it from below, it sprang like a fountain at the stars, and when they saw it, as now from above, it poured like a cataract into a voiceless pit. For these two men on the tower were left alone with the most terrible aspect of Gothic, the monstrous foreshortening and disproportion, the dizzying perspectives, the glimpses of great things small and small things great, the topsy-turvydom of stone in the mid-air. Details of stone, enormous by their proximity, were relieved against a pattern of fields and farms pygmy in their distance. A carved bird or beast at a corner seemed like some vast walking or flying dragon 
wasting the pastures and villages below. The whole atmosphere was dizzy and dangerous, as if men were upheld in air amid the gyrating wings of colossal genii, and the whole of that old church, as tall and rich as a cathedral, seemed to sit upon the sunlit country like a sunburst. I think there is something rather dangerous about standing on these high places, even to pray, said Father Brown. Heights were made to be looked at, not to be looked from. Do you mean that one may fall over? asked Wilfred. I mean that one's soul may fall, if one's body doesn't, said the other priest. I scarcely understand you, remarked Bowen indistinctly. Look at that blacksmith, for instance, went on Father Brown calmly. A good man, but not a Christian, hard, imperious, unforgiving. Well, his Scotch religion was made up by men who prayed on hills and high crags, and learnt to look down on the world more than to look up at heaven. Humility is the mother of giants. One sees great things from the valley, only small things from the peak. But he, he didn't do it, said Bowen tremulously. No, said the other in an odd voice. We know he didn't do it. After a moment he resumed, looking tranquilly out over the plain with his pale gray eyes. I knew a man, he said, who began by worshipping with others before the altar, but who grew fond of high and lonely places to pray from, corners or niches in the belfry or the spire. And once, in one of those dizzy places, where the whole world seemed to turn under him like a wheel, his brain turned also, and he fancied he was God. So that, though he was a good man, he committed a great crime. Wilfred's face was turned away, but his bony hands turned blue and white as they tightened on the parapet of stone. He thought it was given to him to judge the world and strike down the sinner. He would never have had such a thought if he had been kneeling with other men upon a floor but he saw all men walking about like insects. He saw one especially strutting just below him, insolent and evident by a bright green hat, a poisonous insect. Rooks cawed round the corners of the belfry, but there was no other sound till Father Brown went on. This also tempted him, that he had in his hand one of the most awful engines of nature, I mean gravitation, that mad and quickening rush by which all earth's creatures fly back to her heart when released. See, the inspector is strutting just below us in the smithy. If I were to toss a pebble over this parapet, it would be something like a bullet by the time it struck him. If I were to drop a hammer, even a small hammer. Wilfred Bowen threw one leg over the parapet 
and Father Brown had him in a minute by the collar. Not by that door, he said quite gently. That door leads to hell. Bowen staggered back against the wall and stared at him with frightful eyes. How do you know all this? he cried. Are you a devil? I am a man, answered Father Brown gravely, and therefore have all devils in my heart. Listen to me, he said after a short pause. I know what you did. At least, I can guess the great part of it. When you left your brother, you were racked with no unrighteous rage, to the extent even that you snatched up a small hammer, half inclined to kill him with his foulness on his mouth. Recoiling, you thrust it under your buttoned coat instead, and rushed into the church. You pray wildly in many places, under the angel window, upon the platform above, and a higher platform still, from which you could see the colonel's eastern hat like the back of a green beetle crawling about. Then something snapped in your soul, and you let God's thunderbolt fall. Wilfred put a weak hand to his head, and asked in a low voice, How did you know that his hat looked like a green beetle? Oh, that, said the other, with the shadow of a smile. That was common sense. But hear me further. I say I know all this, but no one else shall know it. The next step is for you. I shall take no more steps. I will seal this with the seal of confession. If you ask me why, there are many reasons, and only one that concerns you. I leave things to you because you have not yet gone very far wrong as assassins go. You did not help to fix the crime on the smith when it was easy, or on his wife when that was easy. You tried to fix it on the imbecile because you knew that he could not suffer. That was one of the gleams that it is my business to find in assassins. And now come down into the village and go your own way as free as the wind, for I have said my last word. They went down the winding stairs in utter silence, and came out into the sunlight by the smithy. Wilfred Bowen carefully unlatched the wooden gate of the yard, and going up to the inspector, said, I wish to give myself up. I have killed my brother. End of the Hammer of God This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Brian Roberg, www.brianroberg.org. The Innocence of Father Brown by G. K. Chesterton. THE EYE OF APOLLO 
that singular smoky sparkle, at once a confusion and a transparency, which is the strange secret of the Thames, was changing more and more from its grey to its glittering extreme as the sun climbed to the zenith over Westminster, and two men crossed Westminster Bridge. One man was very tall, and the other very short. They might even have been fantastically compared to the arrogant clock tower of Parliament and the humbler humped shoulders of the Abbey, for the short man was in clerical dress. The official description of the tall man was Monsieur Hercule Flambeau, private detective, and he was going to his new offices in a new pile of flats facing the Abbey entrance. The official description of the short man was the Reverend J. Brown, attached to St. Francis Xavier's Church, Camberwell, and he was coming from a Camberwell deathbed to see the new offices of his friend. The building was American in its skyscraping altitude, and American also in the oiled elaboration of its machinery of telephones and lifts. But it was barely finished and still understaffed. Only three tenants had moved in. The office just above Flambeau was occupied, as also was the office just below him. The two floors above that, and the three floors below, were entirely bare. But the first glance at the new tower of flats caught something much more arresting. Save for a few relics of scaffolding, the one glaring object was erected outside the office just above Flambeau's. It was an enormous gilt effigy of the human eye, surrounded with rays of gold, and taking up as much room as two or three of the office windows. "'What on earth is that?' asked Father Brown, and stood still. "'Oh, a new religion,' said Flambeau, laughing. "'One of those new religions that forgive your sins by saying you never had any.' rather like Christian science, I should think. The fact is that a fellow calling himself Kalan, I don't know what his name is, except that it can't be that, has taken the flat just above me. I have two lady typewriters underneath me, and this enthusiastic old humbug on top. He calls himself the new priest of Apollo, and he worships the sun. Let him look out, said Father Brown. The sun was the cruelest of all the gods. But what does that monstrous eye mean? As I understand it, it is a theory of theirs, answered Flambeau, that a man can endure anything if his mind is quite steady. Their two great symbols are the sun and the open eye for they say that if a man were really healthy, he could stare at the sun. If a man were really healthy, said Father Brown, he would not bother to stare at it. 
"'Well, that's all I can tell you about the new religion,' went on Flambeau carelessly. "'It claims, of course, that it can cure all physical diseases.' "'Can it cure the one spiritual disease?' asked Father Brown, with a serious curiosity. "'And what is the one spiritual disease?' asked Flambeau, smiling. "'Oh, thinking one is quite well,' said his friend. Flambeau was more interested in the quiet little office below him than in the flamboyant temple above. He was a lucid southerner, incapable of conceiving himself as anything but a Catholic or an atheist, and new religions, of a bright and pallid sort, were not much in his line. But humanity was always in his line, especially when it was good-looking. Moreover, the ladies downstairs were characters in their own way. The office was kept by two sisters, both slight and dark, one of them tall and striking. She had a dark, eager, and aquiline profile, and was one of those women whom one always thinks of in profile, as of the clean-cut edge of some weapon. She seemed to cleave her way through life. She had eyes of startling brilliancy, but it was the brilliancy of steel rather than of diamonds, and her straight, slim figure was a shade too stiff for its grace. Her younger sister was like her shortened shadow, a little grayer, paler, and more insignificant. They both wore a business-like black, with little masculine cuffs and collars. There are thousands of such curt, strenuous ladies in the offices of London, but the interest of these lay rather in their real than their apparent position. For Pauline Stacy, the elder, was actually the heiress of a crest in half a county, as well as great wealth. She had been brought up in castles and gardens before a frigid fierceness, peculiar to the modern woman, had driven her to what she considered a harsher and a higher existence. She had not, indeed, surrendered her money. In that there would have been a romantic or monkish abandon quite alien to her masterful utilitarianism. She held her wealth she would say, for use upon practical social objects. Part of it she had put into her business, the nucleus of a model typewriting emporium. Part of it was distributed in various leagues and causes for the advancement of such work among women. How far Joan, her sister and partner, shared this slightly prosaic idealism no one could be very sure. But she followed her leader with a dog-like affection, which was somehow more attractive, with its touch of tragedy, than the hard, high spirits of the elder. For Pauline Stacy had nothing to say to tragedy. She was understood to deny its existence. 
Her rigid rapidity and cold impatience had amused Flambeau very much on the first occasion of his entering the flats. He had lingered outside the lift in the entrance hall, waiting for the lift boy, who generally conducts strangers to the various floors. But this bright-eyed falcon of a girl had openly refused to endure such official delay. She said sharply that she knew all about the lift, and was not dependent on boys, or men either. Though her flat was only three floors above, she managed in the few seconds of ascent to give Flambeau a great many of her fundamental views in an offhand manner. They were, to the general effect, that she was a modern working woman and loved modern working machinery. Her bright black eyes blazed with abstract anger against those who rebuke mechanic science and ask for the return of romance. Everyone, she said, ought to be able to manage machines, just as she could manage the lift. She seemed almost to resent the fact of Flambeau opening the lift door for her, and that gentleman went up to his own apartments, smiling with somewhat mingled feelings at the memory of such spitfire self-dependence. She certainly had a temper, of a snappy, practical sort. The gestures of her thin, elegant hands were abrupt or even destructive. Once Flambeau entered her office on some typewriting business, and found she had just flung a pair of spectacles belonging to her sister into the middle of the floor and stamped on them. She was already in the rapids of an ethical tirade about the sickly medical notions and the morbid admission of weakness implied in such an apparatus. She dared her sister to bring such artificial, unhealthy rubbish into the place again. She asked if she was expected to wear wooden legs or false hair or glass eyes, and as she spoke, her eyes sparkled like the terrible crystal. Flambeau, quite bewildered with this fanaticism, could not refrain from asking Miss Pauline, with direct French logic, why a pair of spectacles was a more morbid sign of weakness than a lift, and why, if science might help us in the one effort, it might not help us in the other. That is so different, said Pauline Stacy loftily. Batteries and motors and all those things are marks of the force of man. Yes, Mr. Flambeau, and the force of woman, too. We shall take our turn at these great engines that devour distance and defy time. That is high and splendid. That is really science. But these nasty props and plasters the doctors sell, why, they are just badges of poltroonery. Doctors stick on legs and arms as if we were born cripples and sick slaves. But I was free-born, Mr. Flambeau. People only think they need these things because they have been trained in fear instead of being trained in power and courage just as the silly nurses tell children not to stare at the sun 
and so they can't do it without blinking. But why, among the stars, should there be one star I may not see? The sun is not my master, and I will open my eyes and stare at him whenever I choose. Your eyes, said Flambeau, with a foreign bow, will dazzle the sun. He took pleasure in complimenting this strange, stiff beauty, partly because it threw her a little off her balance. But as he went upstairs to his floor, he drew a deep breath and whistled, saying to himself, So she has got into the hands of that conjurer upstairs with his golden eye. For, little as he knew or cared about the new religion of Calon, he had heard of his special notion about sun-gazing. He soon discovered that the spiritual bond between the floors above and below him was close and increasing. The man who called himself Calon was a magnificent creature, worthy, in a physical sense, to be the pontiff of Apollo. He was nearly as tall even as Flambeau, and very much better looking, with a golden beard, strong blue eyes, and a mane flung back like a lion's. In structure, he was the blonde beast of Nietzsche, but all this animal beauty was heightened, brightened, and softened by genuine intellect and spirituality. If he looked like one of the great Saxon kings, he looked like one of the kings that were also saints. And this, despite the cockney incongruity of his surroundings, the fact that he had an office halfway up a building in Victoria Street, that the clerk, a commonplace youth in cuffs and collars, sat in the outer room between him and the corridor, that his name was on a brass plate, and the gilt emblem of his creed hung above his street, like the advertisement of an oculist. All this vulgarity could not take away from the man called Calon the vivid oppression and inspiration that came from his soul and body. When all was said, a man in the presence of this quack did feel in the presence of a great man, even in the loose jacket suit of linen that he wore as a workshop dress in his office, he was a fascinating and formidable figure. And when robed in the white vestments and crowned with the golden circlet in which he daily saluted the sun, he really looked so splendid that the laughter of the street people sometimes died suddenly on their lips. For three times in the day, the new sun-worshipper went out on his little balcony, in the face of all Westminster, to say some litany to his shining lord, once at daybreak, once at sunset, and once at the shock of noon. And it was while the shock of noon still shook faintly from the towers of Parliament and Parish Church that Father Brown, the friend of Flambeau, first looked up and saw the white priest of Apollo. 
Flambeau had seen quite enough of these daily salutations of Phoebus, and plunged into the porch of the tall building without even looking for his clerical friend to follow. But Father Brown, whether from a professional interest in ritual, or a strong individual interest in tomfoolery, stopped and stared up at the balcony of the sun-worshipper, just as he might have stopped and stared up at a punch and judy. Calon the prophet was already erect, with argent garments and uplifted hands, and the sound of his strangely penetrating voice could be heard all the way down the busy street uttering his solar litany. He was already in the middle of it. His eyes were fixed upon the flaming disk. It is doubtful if he saw anything or anyone on this earth. It is substantially certain that he did not see a stunted, round-faced priest who, in the crowd below, looked up at him with blinking eyes. That was perhaps the most startling difference between even these two far-divided men. Father Brown could not look at anything without blinking, but the priest of Apollo could look on the blaze at noon without a quiver of the eyelid. O sun, cried the prophet, O star that art too great to be allowed among the stars, O fountain that flowest quietly in that secret spot that is called space, white father of all white unwearied things, white flames and white flowers and white peaks, father who art more innocent than all thy most innocent and quiet children, primal purity into the peace of which a rush and a crash like the reversed rush of a rocket was cloven with a strident and incessant yelling. Five people rushed into the gate of the mansions as three people rushed out, and for an instant they all deafened each other. The sense of some utterly abrupt horror seemed for a moment to fill half the street with bad news. Bad news that was all the worse, because no one knew what it was. Two figures remained still after the crash of commotion, the fair priest of Apollo on the balcony above, and the ugly priest of Christ below him. At last the tall figure and titanic energy of Flambeau appeared in the doorway of the mansions and dominated the little mob. Talking at the top of his voice like a foghorn, he told somebody or anybody to go for a surgeon, and as he turned back into the dark and thronged entrance, his friend Father Brown slipped in insignificantly after him. Even as he ducked and dived through the crowd, he could still hear the magnificent melody and monotony of the solar priest still calling on the happy God who is the friend of fountains and flowers. Father Brown found Flambeau and some six other people standing round the enclosed space into which the lift commonly descended. But the lift had not descended. Something else had descended, something that ought to have come by a lift. 
For the last four minutes, Flambeau had looked down on it, had seen the brained and bleeding figure of that beautiful woman who denied the existence of tragedy. He had never had the slightest doubt that it was Pauline Stacy, and, though he had sent for a doctor, he had not the slightest doubt that she was dead. He could not remember for certain whether he had liked her or disliked her. There was so much both to like and dislike. But she had been a person to him, and the unbearable pathos of details and habit stabbed him with all the small daggers of bereavement. He remembered her pretty face and priggish speeches with a sudden secret vividness, which is all the bitterness of death. In an instant, like a bolt from the blue, like a thunderbolt from nowhere, that beautiful and defiant body had been dashed down the open well of the lift to death at the bottom. Was it suicide? With so insolent an optimist, it seemed impossible. Was it murder? But who was there in those hardly inhabited flats to murder anybody. In a rush of raucous words, which he meant to be strong and suddenly found weak, he asked where was that fellow Calon. A voice, habitually heavy, quiet, and full, assured him that Calon, for the last fifteen minutes, had been away up on his balcony, worshipping his god. When Flambeau heard the voice and felt the hand of Father Brown, he turned his swarthy face and said abruptly, Then, if he has been up there all the time, who could have done it? Perhaps, said the other, we might go upstairs and find out. We have half an hour before the police will move. Leaving the body of the slain heiress, in charge of the surgeons, Flambeau dashed up the stairs to the typewriting office, found it utterly empty, and then dashed up to his own. Having entered that, he abruptly returned with a new and white face to his friend. Her sister, he said, with an unpleasant seriousness, her sister seems to have gone out for a walk. Father Brown nodded. Or she may have gone up to the office of that sun man, he said. If I were you, I should just verify that, and then let us all talk it over in your office. No, he added suddenly, as if remembering something. Shall I ever get over that stupidity of mine? Of course, in their office downstairs. Flambeau stared, but he followed the little father downstairs to the empty flat of the Stacys, where that impenetrable pastor took a large red leather chair in the very entrance, from which he could see the stairs and landings, and waited. He did not wait very long. In about four minutes, three figures descended the stairs, alike only in their solemnity. The first was Joan Stacy, the sister of the dead woman. 
Evidently she had been upstairs in the temporary temple of Apollo. The second was the priest of Apollo himself, his litany finished, sweeping down the empty stairs in utter magnificence. Something in his white robes, beard, and parted hair had the look of Doré's Christ leaving the Praetorium. The third was Flambeau, black-browed and somewhat bewildered. Miss Joan Stacy, dark, with a drawn face and hair prematurely touched with grey, walked straight to her own desk and set out her papers with a practical flap. The mere action rallied everyone else to sanity. If Miss Joan Stacy was a criminal, she was a cool one. Father Brown regarded her for some time with an odd little smile, and then, without taking his eyes off her, addressed himself to somebody else. Prophet, he said, presumably addressing Calon. I wish you would tell me a lot about your religion. I shall be proud to do it, said Calon, inclining his still crowned head. But I am not sure that I understand. Why, it's like this, said Father Brown, in his frankly doubtful way. We are taught that if a man has really bad first principles, that must be partly his fault. But, for all that, we can make some difference between a man who insults his quite clear conscience and a man with a conscience more or less clouded with sophistries. Now, do you really think that murder is wrong at all? Is this an accusation? asked Calon very quietly. No, answered Brown, equally gently. It is the speech for the defense. In the long and startled stillness of the room, the prophet of Apollo slowly rose, and really it was like the rising of the sun. He filled that room with his light and life in such a manner that a man felt he could as easily have filled Salisbury Plain. His robed form seemed to hang the whole room with classic draperies. His epic gesture seemed to extend it to grander perspectives, till the little black figure of the modern cleric seemed to be a fault and an intrusion, a round black blot upon some splendor of Hellas. We meet at last, Caiaphas, said the prophet. Your church and mine are the only realities on this earth. I adore the sun, and you the darkening of the sun. You are the priest of the dying, and I of the living God. Your present work of suspicion and slander is worthy of your coat and creed. All your church is but a black police. You are only spies and detectives seeking to tear from men confessions of guilt, whether by treachery or torture. You would convict men of crime. I would convict them of innocence. You would convince them of sin. I would convince them of virtue. 
reader of the books of evil, one more word before I blow away your baseless nightmares forever. Not even faintly could you understand how little I care whether you can convict me or no. The things you call disgrace and horrible hanging are to me no more than an ogre in a child's toy book to a man once grown up. You said you were offering the speech for the defense. I care so little for the cloudland of this life that I will offer you the speech for the prosecution. There is but one thing that can be said against me in this matter, and I will say it myself. The woman that is dead was my love and my bride. Not after such manner as your tin chapels call lawful, but by a law purer and sterner than you will ever understand. She and I walked another world from yours, and trod palaces of crystal while you were plodding through tunnels and corridors of brick. Well, I know that policemen, theological and otherwise, always fancy that where there has been love, there must soon be hatred. So there you have the first point made for the prosecution. But the second point is stronger. I do not grudge it you. Not only is it true that Pauline loved me, but it is also true that this very morning, before she died, she wrote at that table a will leaving me and my new church half a million. Come, where are the handcuffs? Do you suppose I care what foolish things you do with me? Penal servitude will only be like waiting for her at a wayside station. The gallows will only be going to her in a headlong car. He spoke with the brain-shaking authority of an orator, and Flambeau and Joan Stacy stared at him in amazed admiration. Father Brown's face seemed to express nothing but extreme distress. He looked at the ground with one wrinkle of pain across his forehead. The prophet of the sun leaned easily against the mantelpiece and resumed. In a few words I have put before you the whole case against me, the only possible case against me. In fewer words still, I will blow it to pieces, so that not a trace of it remains. As to whether I have committed this crime, the truth is in one sentence. I could not have committed this crime. Pauline Stacy fell from this floor to the ground at five minutes past twelve. A hundred people will go into the witness box and say that I was standing out upon the balcony of my own rooms above from just before the stroke of noon to a quarter past, the usual period of my public prayers. My clerk, a respectable youth from Clapham, with no sort of connection with me, will swear that he sat in my outer office all the morning and that no communication passed through. He will swear that I arrived a full ten minutes before the hour, fifteen minutes before any whisper of the accident, and that I did not leave the office or the balcony all that time. No one ever had so complete an alibi. I could subpoena half Westminster. I think you had better put the handcuffs away again. The case is at an end.
but last of all, that no breath of this idiotic suspicion remain in the air, I will tell you all you want to know. I believe I do know how my unhappy friend came by her death. You can, if you choose, blame me for it, or my faith and philosophy at least, but you certainly cannot lock me up. It is well known to all students of the higher truths that certain adepts and illuminati have in history attained the power of levitation, that is, of being self-sustained upon the empty air. It is but a part of that general conquest of matter which is the main element in our occult wisdom. Poor Pauline was of an impulsive and ambitious temper. I think, to tell the truth, she thought herself somewhat deeper in the mysteries than she was, and she has often said to me, as we went down in the lift together, that if one's will were strong enough, one could float down as harmlessly as a feather. I solemnly believe that in some ecstasy of noble thoughts she attempted the miracle. Her will, or faith, must have failed her at the crucial instant, and the lower law of matter had its horrible revenge. There is the whole story, gentlemen, very sad and, as you think, very presumptuous and wicked, but certainly not criminal or in any way connected with me. In the shorthand of the police courts, you had better call it suicide. I shall always call it heroic failure for the advance of science and the slow scaling of heaven. It was the first time Flambeau had ever seen Father Brown vanquished. He still sat looking at the ground with a painful and corrugated brow, as if in shame. It was impossible to avoid the feeling which the prophet's winged words had fanned, that here was a sullen, professional suspector of men overwhelmed by a prouder and purer spirit of natural liberty and health. At last, he said, blinking as if in bodily distress. Well, if that is so, sir, you need do no more than take the testamentary paper you spoke of and go. I wonder where the poor lady left it. It will be over there on her desk by the door, I think, said Calon, with that massive innocence of manner that seemed to acquit him wholly. She told me specially she would write it this morning, and I actually saw her writing as I went up in the lift to my own room. Was her door open then? asked the priest, with his eye on the corner of the matting. Yes, said Calon calmly. Ah, it has been open ever since, said the other, and resumed his silent study of the mat. There is a paper over here, said the grim Miss Joan, in a somewhat singular voice. She had passed over to her sister's desk by the doorway, and was holding a sheet of blue fool's cap in her hand. There was a sour smile on her face, that seemed unfit for such a scene or occasion, and Flambeau looked at her with a darkening brow. 
Calon the prophet stood away from the paper with that loyal unconsciousness that had carried him through. But Flambeau took it out of the lady's hand and read it with the utmost amazement. It did, indeed, begin in the formal manner of a will, but after the words, I give and bequeath all of which I die possessed, the writing abruptly stopped with a set of scratches, and there was no trace of the name of any legatee. Flambeau, in wonder, handed this truncated document to his clerical friend, who glanced at it and silently gave it to the priest of the sun. An instant afterwards, that pontiff, in his splendid sweeping draperies, had crossed the room in two great strides and was towering over Joan Stacy, his blue eyes standing from his head. "'What monkey tricks have you been playing here?' he cried. "'That's not all Pauline wrote.' They were startled to hear him speak in quite a new voice, with a Yankee shrillness in it. All his grandeur and good English had fallen from him like a cloak. "'That is the only thing on her desk,' said Joan, and confronted him steadily with the same smile of evil favor. Of a sudden, the man broke out into blasphemies and cataracts of incredulous words. There was something shocking about the dropping of his mask. It was like a man's real face falling off. "'See here!' he cried in broad American, when he was breathless with cursing. "'I may be an adventurer, but I guess you're a murderess. "'Yes, gentlemen, here's your death explained, and without any levitation. "'The poor girl is writing a will in my favor. "'Her cursed sister comes in, struggles for the pen, "'drags her to the well, and throws her down before she can finish it. "'Sakes, I reckon we want the handcuffs after all.' "'As you have truly remarked,' replied Joan, with ugly calm, "'your clerk is a very respectable young man, who knows the nature of an oath, "'and he will swear in any court that I was up in your office "'arranging some typewriting work for five minutes before and five minutes after my sister fell. "'Mr. Flambeau will tell you that he found me there.' "'There was a silence.' Why, then, cried Flambeau, Pauline was alone when she fell, and it was suicide. She was alone when she fell, said Father Brown, but it was not suicide. Then how did she die? asked Flambeau impatiently. She was murdered. But she was alone, objected the detective. She was murdered when she was all alone, answered the priest. All the rest stared at him, but he remained sitting in the same old dejected attitude, with a wrinkle in his round forehead and an appearance of impersonal shame and sorrow. His voice was colorless and sad. What I want to know, cried Calon with an oath, 
is when the police are coming for this bloody and wicked sister. She's killed her flesh and blood. She's robbed me of half a million that was just as sacredly mine as— Come, come, prophet, interrupted Flambeau, with a kind of sneer. Remember that all this world is a cloudland. The hierophant of the sun-god made an effort to climb back on his pedestal. It is not the mere money, he cried, though that would equip the cause throughout the world. It is also my beloved one's wishes. To Pauline, all this was holy. In Pauline's eyes, Father Brown suddenly sprang erect, so that his chair fell over flat behind him. He was deathly pale, yet he seemed fired with a hope. His eyes shone. That's it! he cried in a clear voice. That's the way to begin, in Pauline's eyes. The tall prophet retreated before the tiny priest in an almost mad disorder. What do you mean? How dare you? he cried repeatedly. In Pauline's eyes, repeated the priest, his own shining more and more. Go on, in God's name go on. The foulest crime the fiends ever prompted feels lighter after confession, and I implore you to confess. Go on, go on. In Pauline's eyes. Let go of me, you devil, thundered Calon, struggling like a giant in bonds. Who are you, you cursed spy, to weave your spider's webs round me and peep and peer? Let me go. Shall I stop him? asked Flambeau, bounding towards the exit, for Calon had already thrown the door wide open. No, let him pass, said Father Brown, with a strange, deep sigh that seemed to come from the depths of the universe. Let Cain pass by, for he belongs to God. There was a long-drawn silence in the room when he had left it, which was to Flambeau's fierce wits one long agony of interrogation. Miss Joan Stacy very coolly tidied up the papers on her desk. Father, said Flambeau at last, it is my duty, not my curiosity only, it is my duty to find out, if I can, who committed the crime. Which crime? asked Father Brown. The one we are dealing with, of course replied his impatient friend. "'We are dealing with two crimes,' said Brown. "'Crimes of very different weight, and by very different criminals.' Miss Joan Stacy, having collected and put away her papers, proceeded to lock up her drawer. Father Brown went on, noticing her as little as she noticed him. The two crimes, he observed, were committed against the same weakness of the same person in a struggle for her money. The author of the larger crime found himself thwarted by the smaller crime. The author of the smaller crime got the money. Oh, don't go on like a lecturer, groaned Flambeau. Put it in a few words. I can put it in one word, answered his friend. 
Miss Joan Stacy skewered her business-like black hat onto her head, with a business-like black frown before a little mirror, and, as the conversation proceeded, took her handbag and umbrella in an unhurried style, and left the room. "'The truth is one word, and a short one,' said Father Brown. "'Pauline Stacy was blind.' "'Blind?' repeated Flambeau, and rose slowly to his whole huge stature. "'She was subject to it by blood,' Brown proceeded. "'Her sister would have started eyeglasses if Pauline would have let her, "'but it was her special philosophy or fad "'that one must not encourage such diseases by yielding to them. "'She would not admit the cloud, "'or she tried to dispel it by will.' so her eyes got worse and worse with straining. But the worst strain was to come. It came with this precious prophet, or whatever he calls himself, who taught her to stare at the hot sun with the naked eye. It was called Accepting Apollo. Oh, if these new pagans would only be old pagans, they would be a little wiser. The old pagans knew that mere naked nature-worship must have a cruel side. They knew that the eye of Apollo can blast and blind. There was a pause, and the priest went on in a gentle and even broken voice. Whether or no that devil deliberately made her blind, there is no doubt that he deliberately killed her through her blindness. The very simplicity of the crime is sickening. You know he and she went up and down in those lifts without official help. You know also how smoothly and silently the lifts slide. Calon brought the lift to the girl's landing and saw her, through the open door, writing in her slow, sightless way the will she had promised him. He called out to her cheerily, that he had the lift ready for her, and she was to come out when she was ready. Then he pressed a button and shot soundlessly up to his own floor, walked through his own office, out onto his own balcony, and was safely praying before the crowded street when the poor girl, having finished her work, ran gaily out to where her lover and lift were to receive her and stepped. Don't, cried Flambeau. He ought to have got half a million by pressing that button, continued the little father, in the colorless voice in which he talked of such horrors. But that went smash. It went smash because there happened to be another person who also wanted the money, and who also knew the secret about poor Pauline's sight. There was one thing about that will that I think nobody noticed, Although it was unfinished and without signature, the other Miss Stacy and some servant of hers had already signed it as witnesses. Joan had signed first, saying Pauline could finish it later, with a typical feminine contempt for legal forms. Therefore, Joan wanted her sister to sign the will without real witnesses. Why? I thought of the blindness and felt sure she had wanted Pauline to sign in solitude 
because she had not wanted her to sign at all. People like the Stacys always use fountain pens, but this was specially natural to Pauline. By habit and her strong will and memory, she could still write almost as well as if she saw, but she could not tell when her pen needed dipping. Therefore, her fountain pens were carefully filled by her sister, all except this fountain pen. This was carefully not filled by her sister. The remains of the ink held out for a few lines and then failed altogether. And the prophet lost five hundred thousand pounds and committed one of the most brutal and brilliant murders in human history for nothing. Flambeau went to the open door and heard the official police ascending the stairs. He turned and said, You must have followed everything devilish close to have traced the crime to Calon in ten minutes. Father Brown gave a sort of start. Oh, to him, he said. No, I had to follow rather close to find out about Miss Joan and the fountain pen. But I knew Calon was the criminal before I came into the front door. You must be joking, cried Flambeau. I'm quite serious, answered the priest. I tell you, I knew he had done it, even before I knew what he had done. But why? These pagan Stoics, said Brown reflectively, always fail by their strength. There came a crash and a scream down the street, and the priest of Apollo did not start or look around. I did not know what it was, but I knew that he was expecting it. End of the Eye of Apollo